The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? You're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a golf plan. Lincoln Financial has the products to help protect and grow your financial future. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-dealer affiliate, Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. It's The Argument. I'm Jane Coaston. It seems like right now, any conversation about the 2022 midterms is actually kind of about 2024. And any conversation about 2024 is inevitably about Donald Trump. Even if it's not about Donald Trump the person, but Donald Trump the idea. Because even if Donald Trump doesn't run again, his ideas, his ethos, his whole vibe will be. It'll just be coming from a different Republican. And this primary season, we're seeing a lot of that. So this week, I'm joined by two conservative writers who are thinking a lot about what the winning GOP candidates can tell us about the waxing or waning influence of Donald Trump or the idea of Donald Trump on the party. Hello. Nice to meet you both. Hey, good to meet you. I can't believe we've never talked, I don't think. Yeah, I actually am kind of surprised that this has never happened. I don't know. Good. Well, that's what you're for, right? Uh (laughs) I'm bringing people together. That's right. We try. Here's David French. I'm a senior editor at The Dispatch, a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and Memphis Grizzlies fan. And Chris Caldwell. I'm a contributing editor at the Claremont Review of Books and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times opinion section. This all started, Chris, you wrote an article for New York Times Opinion about J.D. Vance, the best-selling author who just won the Ohio Republican primary election for Senate, analyzing what you think contributed to his popularity in Ohio's primary, including and beyond Trump's endorsement. And I think we can kind of use that as an interesting case study and jumping off point for discussion. I was particularly interested because I'm from Ohio. I was grew up in Ohio. It's always been a very conservative place in a lot of ways. But I wanted to walk through your piece with David because I know he disagrees with some of the major points. First, you say the people who voted for J.D. Vance haven't changed. What's changed is that Trump gave them an outlet for their grievances. But I disagree with that because in 2016, Vance was not a Trump supporter. He described him as reprehensible, as cultural heroin. Flash forward to his campaign, he said that he underwent a political evolution of sorts, that Trump was right, elites are corrupt, and then he got Trump's endorsement in the race. So I think if you read Hillbilly Elegy and you read some of what Vance wrote, it wasn't that there were no problems. It was that Trump was the wrong solution. Why and what do you think changed, Chris? Well, as I say, I I am not sure that Vance changed as much as you are. I think through traveling with him, I formed the impression that we might have taken some of the wrong things out of Hillbilly Elegy. That is, we might have misidentified the center of the book. That book was written in 2013, 14, 15. It came out into the Trump campaign, and I think people grasped that as a way to explain Trump. But I think the emotional center of that book is his relationship with his family. And I think that the sociological explanation of the politics of that region 
I think it's secondary. Now, if you look at the political attitudes the book does describe, a lot of them are really, you'd call them arch-conservative. When I say I think that Trump changed Ohio more than other states, it's because of the nature of the Ohio economy and the Ohio culture that grew out of that economy. It is, again, a varied economy. But if you have a manufacturing-style economy, it has really suffered more than other economies in the last, let's say, generation. And the fact is, you have never had, with a few peeps here and there, but you've never had a presidential nominee of one of the parties who made a full-throated assault on the arrangements that destroyed that economy. And Trump did that. And it's something unique among presidential candidates. I've been alive since 1987. And I remember George W. Bush's election in Ohio, and Ohio helped propel him to two presidential elections. And much of the state-level language that George W. Bush and Karl Rove were relying upon was talking about poor white voters and talking to poor white voters about a compassionate conservatism. Right. So, David, is Vance offering something truly new to low-income white voters than, say, George W. Bush did, or is it a different packaging? And how is that difference actually showing up? Yeah, I think Bush and Vance were moving towards working-class white voters, but appealing to different aspects of the culture of working-class white voters. But there's two things going on at once. One is Bush's, through the language of compassionate conservatism, is appealing to, not just in Ohio, but broader in the United States of America, appealing sort of to the better angels of our nature. So there are people who are being left behind that we need to help. So you had Medicare expansion under Bush, for example. You had tariffs under Bush, for example. A lot of sort of the economic conservative purists really got upset about so many of the things that Bush did. And for a while, it worked. Now, of course, we know what happened as America soured on the Iraq war. We know what happened as, uh, in the aftermath of Katrina and the financial crash. But I think what's different about the appeal now in the Vance's appeal, the Trump appeal, is it is much less reminiscent of a George W. Bush and much more reminiscent of a George Wallace. And when I see Vance and when I see this newest incarnation of Vance, I'm not seeing so much compassionate conservatism as I am seeing a reemergence, though, of the kind of populism that dominated much of the South for a very long time in the South. And it's a populism of resentment. It's a populism of tribal loyalty. It neglects appeals to better angels of our nature in favor of appeals to rage and anger, um, hatred even. And I think what's ultimately playing here isn't so much the globalization argument as it is much more the cultural argument. Much less rooted to, oh, here is this specific policy that Donald Trump or J.D. Vance is going to propose that is going to bring back manufacturing to this region, or there's specific policy that they advance that the Democrats don't advance that is going to make my life better. I think it goes much, much deeper than that. It makes me question how unique Ohio is. Yeah, I'm curious about that, Chris, because from a what-to-do perspective, what is the difference between what 
J.D. Vance would offer and what a compassionate conservative who knows that cutting Medicare is politically a very bad idea do. Like, this isn't J.D. Vance versus Paul Ryan. This is J.D. Vance versus, like, the Republicans who have been Republicans in Ohio since I was a kid. Right. Yeah. I think David kind of lays it out as a choosing, you know, fellow feeling versus choosing group hostility. And I, I don't think that that's the way it happened. I think that what's happened is a shift in the economy that's brought a shift in the class system. And I think that, let's say, at the dawn of the New Deal, you had a Democratic Party that was, although idiosyncratic, pretty identifiable as the the working man's party and a Republican Party that was more or less a proprietor's party. The New Deal changed that, and it created a kind of alternative way of rising through the society. There was a sort of a, a Democratic Party constituency of both working people and, let's say, educational institutions that gave an alternative way to rise. And so when you get to the 1980s, neither of the parties had a strong class identity. They had a class mythology in them. I think that the Democrats still thought of themselves as the, you know, the party of the downtrodden working man. But the downtrodden working man might have a second house on one of the Great Lakes with a boat. What's happened lately is a few things. We've had deindustrialization, but we've also had the rise of a new economy, a lot of it around universities. And the Democrats are the party of universities. And so very kind of gradually to the point where we haven't really noticed, we have emerged back in a world where the parties have class identities. And so I think that what you're seeing is loud class arguments from certain Republican candidates. Vance is one of them. And that's one of the reasons I began the article by quoting Vance, really shouting very passionately about wanting to break up the tech companies. And it's not that the people who vote for him don't use the internet or anything like that, but they don't feel they have any say in the way the new, let's say, high-tech economy and social order is set up. David, you're looking askance. I'm thinking we're overanalyzing this a lot. I think J.D. Vance is a very online new right politician. He has a Twitter constituency. So he has, I've got your grievances, new right Twitter that sort of builds some zealous support that he has in that world, which is really truthfully electorally irrelevant. It's mainly useful because he has some of the same hobby horses that Tucker Carlson has, for example. So that helps get him on Tucker Carlson. But the reality was there was this race for the Trump endorsement and he captured the Trump endorsement. And then he's running in a multi-candidate primary where that Trump endorsement's going to make a big difference. And, you know, he goes for the Trump endorsement in a couple of ways. One of the ways he goes is by fighting like Trump, by appealing to that lowest common denominator kind of rhetoric. Fight, 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 never back down, fight, fight, fight. This isn't, I don't think, an exercise in difficult sociological analysis. (laughs) He was in a multi-candidate primary. He appealed to lowest common denominator populism. One of the things he said is, our people hate the right people. Our people hate the right people. And he captured, you know, 30 plus percent of the electorate, still bigger than folks thought. Now he's going to run in a general election in a two-candidate race where it's really rough for Democrats and that negative polarization is the single dominant factor of American politics. So I, I also think it's worth recognizing here that because it was a 
multi-person primary, it's not like J.D. Vance won an overwhelming number of votes. There were a lot of people running for that nomination. And he beat Josh Mandel, the most try-hard person perhaps in the history (laughs) of American politics. And I do want to pivot to the general election because, Chris, you wrote that Vance told you that he thinks he got Trump's endorsement because he embraced Trump as a political program to be carried out, not just as kind of like a vibe to follow. What is the program? What What is he going to do? Uh, yeah, I, I should make very clear, though, that was a beautiful quote that Vance gave. But it, I didn't get it. Actually, it's from a Dayton television reporter named Chelsea Sick. So I think that the context in which she asked him that question was the one you say, that a lot of candidates were going for the Trump endorsement. Right. The one who didn't seek it, Matt Dolan of Cleveland, a, a state senator, got about 25% of the vote. But this indicates that whoever got that endorsement, you know, endorsement yeah. was in a very strong position. To do when, what? Well, it leaves him in a strong position in the election. Now, what's he going to do? I don't know. When he talked about Trumpism being an agenda, he named trade, the border, and not getting us into wars of choice. And so I tend to think that Vance will be protectionist. You know, he would not revive the Pacific Trade Pact that Trump pulled out of. He would build the wall if he could get the the votes for it in a non-metaphorical sense. Mm-hmm. And in a metaphorical sense, he would be much more restrictionist on the Mexican border. And he'll oppose the Ukraine war or the United States' role in it. I think those are three things, trade, the border, foreign policy. I mean, it still seems to me, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, David, that like, because of what I'd call the nationalization of politics, like I grew up with It makes me sound like I'm 80 years old to talk this way. But like, I think it is interesting to me that after growing up with Ohio politics being Ohio centered, as if Ohio was, and I quote, the heart of it all. But now you see that you were just talking about the trade policy and the war in Ukraine and securing the Mexican border. And I'm just like, what does this have to do with my mom? What does this have to do with like... If I am elected, this thing will happen. We'll finally do something about the I-71-75 interchange. I mean, this is perhaps just a general pet peeve of mine, but I think that the nationalization of politics coincides with the sense that Congress can't actually do anything because individual Congress people are talking about the Mexican border or war with Ukraine, which are both really important issues, but... At a certain point, if J.D. Vance wants the wall to get built as a United States senator, he's got some power to do so, but not much. You know, if you are supposed to call your senator when there's a thing going on in your state and they're like, hang on a second, I got to stop unnecessary wars in Ukraine. Yeah, I would get a sense of like, who who are you here for? Are you here for Ohioans or are you here for this larger political project? Well, you know, I think that the rise of negative polarization kind of enables a J.D. Vance style candidate who I see as sort of, what is he going to be like in the Senate? I think we've seen the model, and the model is Josh Hawley. I think that's what you'll see with J.D. Vance, is you're going to see a guy who will become a senator. He'll file some really performative legislation. He has this whole album side about, you know, seizing the endowments of universities and things like that. But, you know, if we're going to take for half a second this idea that he's if and when he wins the the Senate, 
in Ohio, that that's going to show that Republicans really don't want to see American military support for Ukraine. We need to rethink that kind of analysis because he's going to win because he he won the primary because he got Trump's endorsement. He didn't get Trump's endorsement because of some really difficult, highly ideological test. One of the reasons he got it is Trump liked his golf swing. I mean, this is the world we're living in right now. And what we've constantly tried to do, I feel like in this post-Trump world, is we've we're constantly trying to apply a complex intellectual frame. Yeah, we're, we're trying to intellectualize someone who also endorsed Dr. Oz. Right, endorsed Dr. Oz, endorsed David Perdue in Georgia for the very simple reason that David Perdue will do his bidding on arguing about the 2020 election. And so this is where I feel like the, there's this disconnect often when we try to intellectualize Trump, and there's this disconnect when we try to intellectualize J.D. Vance. Trump, A, tapped into this well of animosity, He tapped into it, and I agree that he changed the country in some ways. He changed the country by amplifying pre-existing trends towards partisan antipathy and in much the way that sometimes a symptom can make an underlying disease worse, like a hacking cough can break a rib. He did not really actually at the grassroots introduce some sort of really fascinating uh, new ideological enterprise because The reality is kind of whatever Trump did, they liked. And look, I've piled a lot on sort of the the Republican populist movement now, but let me flip this around a little bit here. The Democrats really made a pivot towards an identity-based coalition. I remember all the talk after 2012 of the coalition of the ascendant, right? People of color, single women, all of the rising demographics of America are going to rise and swamp you. It's all over for you. Republican Party. Why is it all over for you, Republican Party? Well, you're just too white and too male to win anymore. And I think when your political opponents move very much towards an identity-based coalition and away from a working-class-based coalition, you leave a lane and you leave a lot of voters just right there. And if you look at the demographics of Ohio, Ohio is 81% 81% white. That's more white I than know. America. I'm <laughs> Jane, aware. News, news to you, Jane. Uh, Ohio's more white than the rest of America. If you look at Iowa, that is now completely sort of in the GOP camp, it's super white. And so it's not that the Democrats were necessarily wrong that there was an emerging Democratic majority. It's just that this majority was emerging in a lot of the wrong places where they didn't need it to emerge. You know, how many more progressives do you need in Brooklyn or Berkeley? And so you're you're doubling down on identity-based politics, leaving behind sort of class-based politics. And my issue isn't that Republicans have moved into this open field that Democrats have left them. It's more how they've moved into it than the fact that they've moved into it. I just, there's a premise that's come up that I think I disagree with both of you on, which is that there's something unusual about a Senate candidate dealing with these national issues. Well, I, I, mean, I don't think it's, it's not unusual to yeah. me, but my point is that I don't think it's good. I think that it is problematic to have candidates who inherently focus on issues that they themselves could not fix or they themselves could bear no responsibility for. Oh, My- but I, but I think you could. I, I, you know, I think you know the Senate has a constitutional responsibility re- regarding um, 
treaties. Congress, you know, gets to declare war and not. Uh, well, the, I they, mean, they the border do. is a national. The border is a national matter, and I there is a division of labor between you know state and national governments, and I think there's a feeling that the government of Ohio is pretty well in hand. Thinking more about you wrote about Trump in your piece, saying that like you know, globalization and being against NAFTA was part of one of Trump's most effective rallying cries. And you, you wrote yourself, though, whether Mr. Trump has effectively stopped anything related to globalization can be debated. And it seems that maximalism is the privilege of being able to say anything you want without anyone really calling you on it. Yes. So but, mm-hmm. with Trump, you have someone who doesn't really do anything related to globalization because it's an effective boogeyman. It's effective to just have the thing that is there is a problem and we all know what the problem is, but you're not going to do anything to fix the problem because either the solution is too politically complicated or too politically unpopular. We are asking or would be asking J.D. Vance to do something, to be a United States senator, to represent my mom. But if you are leaning hard on, here are all of our problems, we are in late-staged capitalism, we have to fire everyone and, you know, liquidate the kulaks, and then you get into actual office, then what do you do? But no, but I don't think people are saying that. And I, think, I don't think that the differences between rhetoric and reality, I think it's, it has to do with the passage of time. Governing is really complicated, and I think that failed governments whatever they propose in acting, learn a lot from the way they were thwarted and they get better at it as time goes on. So the rhetoric always seems to be at odds with reality until it becomes reality. So I don't, you know, some of these ideas might be good, some of them might be bad, but I don't, um, I'm not suspicious of them just because they're being proposed. You know, I think you raise a really interesting question about the distinction between fixing and fighting. Okay, so... You say Ohio has problems A, B, C, and D. What are we going to do to fix them is one kind of thrust in campaigning. Then there's another that says the Democrats have problems A, B, C, and D. What are we going to do to fight them? And I think that's where Trump really discerned the building sort of wave of Republican resentment. It wasn't so much on the fixing prong. It was much more on the fighting prong. And, you know, the interesting thing, sort of if you're diving into the ideology of Trumpism, is there isn't really an ideology. It's more the ambitions and power hunger of of a single man. If you look at his single term in office, his two largest concrete policy achievements were a corporate tax cut designed by Paul Ryan and the nomination of a whole slew of Federalist Society judges that were put into a pipeline over the last generation of establishment Republican judicial and legal activism. And I would note here on that point that there is no reason to believe that any other Republican president would have not nominated those judges. Oh, yeah. The judges were going to be in there no matter what. Oh, they were coming out of the establishment pipeline. You do not get more establishment than Brett Kavanaugh. But what did make Trump different? It was the fighting. It was the fighting. And I think if you talk to J.D. Vance in 2016, he would say, wait a minute, the, this fighting stuff is a distraction from what needs fixing. And I think what changed in 2016 to 2020 was not these folks, it was JD and the way he transitioned from the fixing to the fighting. And I think what he saw in Trump was somebody who would inhibit the fixing. He was somebody who was certainly an avatar for grievances, but 
not a instrument for remedies. And I think that that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about if you have a, a population of white working class voters where there are real problems and how do you appeal to them and mobilize them? I think that there are constructive ways to appeal and destructive ways. J.D. was concerned in 2016 that the very method he chose in 2020 was deeply destructive. And yet that's where he went. I think there's no doubt that Trump is a fighting politician. But I think that fighting, I was really struck by the entrance of the word fight into a lot of political rhetoric well before Trump, 10 years or so ago. And it seems to have come with a lot of psychological research on how people respond to rhetoric. And and I think it's of a piece with the the negative advertising, which we see because negative advertising, whether we like it or not, has a strange effectiveness on voters. If you listen to Elizabeth Warren, she talks about fighting probably even more than Trump does. I think it's really more a best campaign practice than an ideological side effect. I don't think anyone disputes that there's a wide open lane for populist incitement. I think the issue with J.D. Vance and the issue with the Republican Party in general is this move that says, we're going to indulge it, we're going to stoke it, we're going to ride it. There isn't actually a program of governance that's attached to that beyond a few sort of basic impulses about border security and some vague ideas about trade. I think it's wrong to assume that there's going to be a symmetrical Republican policy program to the Democratic policy program. The Democrats are the party of policy programs. They have a much lot more initiative in devising new things for government to do. And and you're just not going to find a sort of reflected mirror policy image on Republicans. It's not a symmetry. The Republicans will tend to be obstructing new policy initiatives. And I haven't really thought about what this would mean in terms of of rhetoric, but the rhetoric is bound to be different. You know, just simply sitting around and doing nothing for Republicans can in certain circumstances be a constructive way to spend four years. And people participate in politics for different reasons, and not all of them are constructive. Wow. I think that is an... (laughs) We will find unanimous agreement on that one. More with David and Chris on the new standard bearers of Trump's legacy after the break. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening.
So we've debated whether Vance is win and Trump's endorsement of Vance is about policy or about vibes and whether some of the fighting rhetoric is just usual stuff politicians do to get elected. I want to talk a little bit now about how much we should infer from his victory about where the GOP is going and if Trump clearly is king here. And I want to know where you think the Republican platform is going forward, because I don't think it's party stalwarts like Mitch McConnell. I think it's, quote unquote, fighters like Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I think the most politically effective way in which a Republican politician is trying to inherit Trumpism is Ron DeSantis. And that's not a novel insight here. But there are two aspects to the way in which Ron DeSantis is inheriting Trumpism effectively. And that is, one, he has the right enemy. And that is the media. So he got very fortunate that the mainstream media, left media, really focused on him early in the pandemic, more so than Texas, more so than Tennessee, more so than anywhere else, really drilled down on him and launched a frontal attack sort of on the Florida approach. And so he he built up this immediate constituency just because people are going to rally on the side of whatever Republican is seen to be in the crosshairs of the media. So he emerged with sort of the, quote unquote, the right enemy. And then the other thing is what he has done that is different from Trump is that Trump's fighting was a lot of rhetoric, was a lot of tweeting, uh, was a lot of outbursts. DeSantis' version of fighting is a lot of legislation aimed at targets that are popular targets for the right. So it's in essence, DeSantis is like the next evolution of Trumpism in that it's taking the online beef into the real world through legislation. Now, a lot of this is going to fall apart in the courts. It's not going to work. You know, in other words, this fight in a real sense is going to fail. But the fact that he did it, the fact that he tried it is enough. And that's why I think he's in a front running position if Trump is not on the ballot and could seriously challenge Trump if Trump does choose to run and DeSantis chooses to challenge him. Yeah. And DeSantis is the first person to sort of like identify issues like this and come up with a whole legislative program around it and pick fights on them. But they're not merely symbolic because should the legislation be struck down, it will show you where to go with new legislation. It's a program and it's really interesting. He's an extraordinarily gifted politician. The question I think about DeSantis is whether he has charisma at the national level. And that's just one of those things that you can't really figure out until you try it. But he's solved the problem of coming up with a with a more focused, more policy-oriented version of Trumpism. I think my, my, my last question for both of you, I start with you, Chris, is outside of this race with Vance, what other midterm races do you think are going to be most interesting to you or most indicative to you of where the GOP is going? The the Pennsylvania Senate race mm-hmm. clearly looks interesting. And obviously, Alaska is striking in different ways. But I, you know, I'm struck when I look at the transformation of, of Ohio was almost the perfect bellwether state for many years. It was for 14 consecutive elections. They picked the winning presidential candidate until they lurched wildly off last election and went for Trump by eight points. And it makes you think like, wow, Ohio must now be one of the most polarized states in in the country. 
but it's actually not. You know, there are really now only about eight swing states left in the country, and that sort of limits the number of races that are going to really tell you something. What do you think, David? You know, I the obvious answers to me are, are Pennsylvania and Georgia. And the reason I say Pennsylvania and Georgia is that in both of those circumstances, unlike Ohio, the Ohio primary, you had all but one of the leading candidates really wanted that Trump endorsement. But both in Pennsylvania and Georgia, really, you've got this these races where he endorses Dr. Oz, he endorses David Perdue, where it really seems like this is Trump through just the sheer force of Trump sort of trying to bully his candidate to victory. And I think what you'll see there in both Pennsylvania and in Georgia is going to be an interesting test on what kind of raw power does Trump have in a mano a mano race where the electorate wouldn't necessarily automatically default to his candidate otherwise. And I don't think Trump's candidates are going to prevail. You know, we'll see soon enough. And I think you might see some narrative shifting move to say, wait a minute, was the J.D. Vance win kind of a product of unique circumstances? And is is the Republican Party maybe not as loyal to Trump? But the bottom line is, I think we're kind of in a, what I would call a, for those who don't want to see Donald Trump as the Republican standard bearer in 2024, which I think would be very, very bad for the country. You're kind of in a race against time, which is, I think, as each month passes, his grip on the party slips just a little bit, just a little bit. But will it have slipped enough by next summer when candidates are announcing that he'll either think twice before announcing himself or there will be a sufficient challenge to where there's a real possibility that he could lose a primary? And that is a question I just don't know the answer to. On that comforting note, David, (laughs) Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jane. David French is senior editor at The Dispatch and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. Chris Caldwell is a contributing opinion writer and author of The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. We'll like Chris's article in the episode notes, along with a piece I wrote in 2017 for National Review called What If There Is No Such Thing as Trumpism? I Am Still Right. The Argument is a production of Nyartem's Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vashak Kaderba. Edited by Alison Brujek and Annabelle Bacon with original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Mary Marge Locker, and Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta, with editorial support from Christina Samuelewski. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug, but I ended up connecting to the world around me, a world where each sunset was painted, where I felt adventures pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time.